If you have your Bibles, turn with me, if you will, to Romans chapter 1. Paul is writing this letter around A.D. 58 or 59, less than 30 years after the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. But he tells us down in verse 8 that the faith of this church was being spoken of all over the world. And later we know from history that the church at Rome became increasingly strong, influential, and eventually corrupt. Even today the church at Rome is a powerful force in Christendom. So the question naturally arises, where did the church come from? And how did it get started? One thing we can pretty much say for certain is that Paul himself did not found it. God had called him to be an apostle to the Gentiles, and Rome was uh, certainly a Gentile city. And yet he himself says down in verse 13 that although he had wanted to come to Rome many times, he had been prevented by doing so, for uh, doing so, presumably because of more pressing missionary concerns in other directions. Paul got to Rome later. Luke tells us that in the book of Acts. He came then not uh, primarily, or he came primarily as a missionary, but he came in chains uh, as a prisoner because he had made his appeal to Caesar, but this was many years after the church had been founded. Roman Catholic tradition holds that the Roman church was founded by the Apostle Peter and that Peter is the first pope. While I don't think it necessary to argue that Peter had never been in Rome, for there is evidence in secular literature and some apocryphal literature specifically the book of Clement, that he had probably been there. I do not think that Peter founded the church at Rome. And I think there is evidence for that in this letter. In the last chapter of the book of Romans, that we'll get to very very quickly, of course, uh, you laugh at me, it hurts. Uh, But in the last letter, Paul tells us that he knew a lot of people there because he mentions a lot of names in the last chapter uh, of the book of Romans. But nowhere does he mention Peter. And that is inconceivable that he would not have mentioned Simon Peter if indeed he had founded the church at Rome. Uh, So it's hard to see how Paul could have written a doctrinal letter uh, like this to the church at Rome if it had been founded by Peter and had received its early teaching from him. As a matter of fact, he says in chapter 15 of Romans that it was his ambition to always preach the gospel where Christ was not known so that I would not be building, he said, on someone else's foundation. So how did the church at Rome become established? And the truth is, we don't know. I think there is a very strong suggestion in the second chapter of Acts as to how it probably happened. You remember 
that on the day of Pentecost, we're told that there were people from all nations in Jerusalem that day. And Luke tells us that there were visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism. Since the text specifically mentions visitors from Rome, I think we are right in assuming that these people, hearing the gospel and being converted to Christianity, carried that gospel back to Italy, and the church at Rome is established. Whatever, whatever the case of its founding, the Roman church uh, existed from the very earliest days of the Christian mission. And that's a pattern that would continue. The early world saw more travel than we might have imagined. Uh, the peace of Rome that the Roman Empire had brought in and an extensive system of roads that they had built in order to uh, get their soldiers from one field of battle to another meant that going places was easier than it ever had been before in history. Now, compared to how we do it today, of course, it was not easy, but it was then. And that would explain how Paul came to know so many of those who were in the church at Rome and why he was not hesitant to send a letter to them asking for their support and prayer and also asking for a contribution for the saints in Jerusalem and for his eventual missionary excursion to Spain that he hoped to go on. It would also explain why, uh, although the church is composed of both Jews and Gentiles, Paul focuses on writing largely uh, to Gentiles. We see that as early as verse 6, where the phrase, including you, most naturally picks up Paul's description uh, in verse 5 of those who come among all the nations. Uh, so the first interesting information is that a body of genuine followers, followers of Jesus Christ, whether large or small, we don't know, existed in the capital of the world, in the Roman Empire of all places. We usually think of Rome as the imperial city of the Caesars, glorious in its architecture, its palaces, and its monuments, its museums, and its treasures. And it was that. But it was also a city of unbelievably gross sin. I mean, uh, I think sometimes we get the idea that the current generation is more sinful than any other. That is really not the case. Now, this generation uh, may, may have been more sinful in different ways. But remember that sin is common to man ever since the fall. Now, technology enables man to sin in different ways, uh, different methods, but the sin remains the same. And Rome was an extremely sinful city. Vice was everywhere. And yet in this city of gross sin, there existed a fellowship of people who rejected Rome's way of life, 
and who lived an entirely different kind of life, one marked by holiness, uh, a mutual sharing of burdens, of love and compassion, not only for each other, but for those who had been abused, those who were downtrodden. It was nothing less than a new humanity that God planted atop the deteriorating carcass of the old. And uh, that is what Christianity always is. It is not an outgrowth. It's not even a quantum leap uh, upward from the world's decaying civilization. It is something utterly new. It is what you are if you are a Christian. When Paul says that if any man be in Christ, he is a new creation. And that's what Christianity is. It's what the local church is, since it is comprised of believers who have had all things made new in their life. Uh, another interesting thing about the second and third part of the introduction that we're looking at here in Romans chapter 1 is what they tell us about the spiritual origins of these people. Here is a group of people who are in the midst of a corrupt pagan society, yet they were entirely different from the mainstream. How did they get to be so different? How did they become Christians? And Paul tells us some important things about the Christians at Rome and about us and about what we are to be in the midst of a gross grossly sinful culture. Uh, first of all, he said, they belong to God the Son. The Christians at Rome, like all Christians, were called to belong to Jesus Christ. This is a general description of Christians, which is different from the phrase, called to be saints. That, that occurs in the next verse. But what does it mean to be called to belong to Jesus Christ. Uh, some have uh, speculated that he was describing Christian people as those called by Jesus Christ. And it is possible to translate the Greek that way. But here, a better translation is to insert the words to belong to. Uh, the sense is not that Jesus has called Christians. That is a work that is generally attributed to God the Father, but rather that as a result of God's calling, Christians are attached to Jesus, and they have their true life in that relationship. Before Paul writes to those in the church at Ephesus and says that they were dead in their transgressions and sins, he says they were by nature objects of God's wrath. Now, as a result of God's calling, they have been made alive with Christ. And they are given good works to do. That's the essential definition of a Christian. He is a Christ one. A Christian is one who belongs to Jesus Christ. That is what makes a Christian different from the world. And one who is a Christian, one who belongs to Jesus Christ, invariably will seek the company of others who belong to Jesus Christ. And there is nothing more important than that 
in a believer's life. You are here this morning because you belong to Jesus Christ. You have come to gather with others of like mind who belong to Jesus Christ. So, does that describe you? Do you belong to Jesus Christ? If you do, you will live like it. If you do not live like it, then it's quite possible that you are not a Christian, regardless of your outward profession. Your outward profession must mirror your inner life, one who belongs to Jesus Christ. We are saved by grace, but grace that saves always, always, always produces good works. Always. That is going to be the message of Romans again and again and again. So they, are, they, they belong to Jesus Christ. Secondly, he says, they are loved by God the Father. The Christians at Rome, like all Christians, were loved by God the Father. That is no bland statement, as if Paul were only declaring that it is God's nature to love, and these citizens of Rome were loved by God like God loves everybody. That is not the way that the Bible speaks of God's love for his people. This love is an electing, saving love. So the phrase, who are loved by God, actually describes how those who are Christians come to belong to Jesus Christ in the first place. Some people think that they become believers by their own unaided choice. All you have to do is accept Jesus. And once you accept Jesus, then you become a Christian. A phrase, by the way, that does not occur in Holy Scripture. But how could we possibly do that if what Paul has said to the church at Ephesus is true? You were dead in your trespasses and sins. You he has made alive who were dead. How can a dead man decide anything? Some have supposed that we become Christians because God in his omniscience sees some little bit of good in us, even if that good is only a tiny seed of faith. But, but how can God see anything good in us if what he says later on in chapter 3 is true? All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good. Not even one. So, here's the question. These people are loved by God. Christians are loved by God. Why does God love us? Is there something in us that prompts God's love for us? No, no, when we get the description of, uh, to, of fallen mankind in, in chapters 2 and 3, really when we start in, in, in verse 18 of chapter 1, and God condemns Jew and Gentile, and then concludes they're all worthless, now there's no good in us, so why does God love us? And the answer is, because He loves us. And there's nothing to be said beyond that. Do you remember how God put that in reference to Israel in the days of Moses in Deuteronomy chapter 7? 
Moses said, The Lord did not set his affection on you and choose you because you were more numerous than other peoples, for you were the fewest of all peoples. But it was because the Lord loved you. The only explanation of why the Lord loved them was because he loved them. It was love and love only. Do you realize that God loves you with a perfect love? That he cannot love you anymore? And that he will not love you any less? Do you understand that his love for you is not conditioned by your performance? That he loves you because he loves you. That's a tremendous thing. If you are a Christian this morning, you are loved by God. That is something so stupendous, so amazing, we can barely take it in. We are Christians for one reason and one reason only. It is that God has set his love upon us. That is the thing that takes us out of the world and out of the dominion of Satan. It's not surprising that the Apostle Paul should remind the believers and us here of this wonderful thing. The world hated them. The world persecuted them. They, uh, they might be arrested at any moment. They might be sent to the arena. They might uh, be executed by a cruel tyrant. They were oftentimes hated of all men. God is anxious that they should realize this. They are beloved by God. They are in Christ. And God loves them the same way that he loves Jesus Christ. A lot of times we're in a hurry to get over these introductory remarks as if they were not important. We want to get on to the real meat of the book. Let's get on to to chapter 6 and 7 and 8 and 9. Let, let's talk about election and predestination. and uh, Let's talk about those things. But this is extremely important. There's a gold mine of scriptural wealth right here. Don't, don't rush on. You say, well, I want to get on to the doctrine of sanctification. Let me tell you something. If you realize that you are loved by God, as he loved his own son, that is the most important thing that you will ever know about sanctification. That you want to live your life in obedience to him because you are loved by him. Because he loves you as he loves Jesus Christ, it is your desire to please him, to live in a manner that is pleasing to him, to walk and to live a life that is worthy somehow, of that love. The most important thing in the world is that God loved us. Therefore, we should love and serve Him. I've told you before of some of the last words that my father ever spoke to me as he was dying. He said to me, the most powerful thing in this world or the world to come is the love of God. And when it comes your turn to die, God will wrap you up in his love and you will have no fear. Only a, only a Christian can face an agonizing death that he died like that. This is most important to know that we are loved by God. And then he says, 
They had believed the gospel. The last part of verse 7. They are called. They were called to be believers by God. Here is the same idea that occurs earlier in the phrase, called to belong to Jesus Christ. But although the meaning of the verb is the same, the emphasis here is different. In the earlier phrase, the emphasis on what it means to be a Christian. Uh, a Christian is one who belongs to Jesus Christ. That is his identity. Here the emphasis is on the call itself. And it's a follow-up to the truth that Christians are loved by God. First we are loved, then we are called. The calling here is what theologians term effectual calling. There are two kinds of calling in any presentation of the gospel. The first is a general calling, which means that all people hear they are called upon to repent of sin and to put their faith in Jesus Christ. It's a calling that corresponds to a demand for obedience. It is present in, in every proclamation of the gospel. But not all who hear will respond to this call. Not all will obey. Nevertheless, when we, in the name of Jesus Christ, plead with people, as Jesus did, come unto me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. It is a genuine calling. When I urge you this morning, if you are not a believer, to repent of your sin, to put your faith in Jesus Christ, that is a genuine calling. It is a genuine exhortation. Because from God's side of the equation, there's nothing left to be done. Uh, but we know that left to their own devices, humans will not respond. The reason they do not is because they are dead in their trespasses and sins. It is not that they could not come. God has not put an obstacle in their way that they could not come. It is that they do not want to come. They have no desire to come. Their will is bound in sin. And so, to that general call, God adds a specific call. He regenerates those whom he has chosen. And he gives to them faith and grace. And they respond and become Christians. It's similar to Jesus' call to Lazarus. John chapter 11. Uh, Lazarus was dead. As a matter of fact, they said he stinks. Don't let that be said of you before you're dead. But anyway, Lazarus could not respond to any call. He was dead. And yet when Jesus said, Lazarus, come forth, he came out of the grave. All of us are spiritual corpses. It requires the effectual call of God to bring us to life that we may come to do God's bidding. Uh, anyone who has been saved by God has heard this effectual call and have responded to it. It may be the case of preaching. You, you, you go to, to a church like this someday and, and you, you realize that somehow the preacher you know, got my number and he's talking right to me. And you respond in faith. You repent of sin and put your faith in Jesus Christ. You believe 
that he died for your sins and he was buried and he rose again the third day. You believe that he is God come in human flesh in order to reconcile sinful man with holy God. Or perhaps you read a book or a track or maybe it's the quiet witness of a friend. Uh, what is common in all of these is that God has called and the person has heard him and believed on Jesus Christ. One of the greatest theologians of the 20th century, the early part of the 21st century, was a man by the name of Robert Charles Sproul. And R.C. Sproul talks about uh, his conversion. He and a roommate in college went to a uh, meeting one night where the gospel was proclaimed, and both of them responded to the invitation to receive Jesus Christ. And the next morning, the roommate said to him, can you believe what we did last night? He said, I, I hope you won't tell anybody about that. You know, he said, we just kind of got caught up in the moment. It meant nothing to him. But it changed R.C. Sproul's life. Changed the whole direction of his life. He, as I said, he, he went on uh, and became a learned doctor of theology and impacted thousands of people across the globe. One had heard a general calling. They both heard that. But one had heard the effectual call of the Spirit of God who had convicted him of sin and of righteousness and of judgment to come and brought him into the kingdom. And then finally, Paul says that they are beneficiaries of grace. They're called to be saints. The Christians at Rome, like all Christians, are called saints. Now, in a large sector of the Christian church today, sainthood is conferred by the church at Rome. You know, you, you nominate someone for sainthood, and uh, then if two miracles can be proven, usually you have to be dead for a while, and then there is a, uh, there is a trial, a canon trial, and there's someone who's called the devil's advocate. And they would get up and say, no, this person should not be canonized, they should not become a saint, because I know this and this and this about them. You know, there's nothing in the Bible about that whatsoever. Not anything that even remotely resembles that ceremony. And yet, we're told that these people, once they receive sainthood, that we can pray to them and they will hear our prayers and they will persuade God to do for us what we want done. Nothing in the Bible about that. The Bible says that all who belong to Jesus Christ are saints. They are separated to God and his work. Precisely what Paul said about himself in verse 1, that he was set apart for the gospel of God. He was a saint for the gospel of God. And I, I've told you numerous times, there's only two kinds of people in the world. The saints... And the ain'ts, that's it. You either a saint or you ain't. Sometimes we protest, you know, people, people will challenge us about our, our, our lack of obedient living and we'll justify ourselves, we'll say, well, I'm not a saint. Yes, you are. You are separated to God 
And you are supposed to live like it. Having been loved by God and called by Him, the Christians at Rome, like all Christians, were then set apart by Him to live in a manner that He prescribes. That's why the faith of the Roman Christians, we're told, was being proclaimed in all the world. Because they had been called by God, they were separated to Him. And these believers were different from the culture around them. And people noticed it. Do people notice the difference in those who profess to be Christians? There's no simple answer to that because the answer is all often relative. Sometimes it's yes in one situation and no in another. But notice the connective relationship between the terms in these two verses. Look at it. They were being loved by God, called by God, and saints. So they were saints because they were called. They were called because they were loved of God. Their being saints was not the cause of their election. It was the result of their election. God didn't call them because they were saints. He called them and made them saints. Set apart for his own glory. So if you profess to be called by God, then you are one who is separated to him. Not, not perfect, but headed in God's direction. The direction of your life is towards obedience. If you have been loved by God and called by God, then you are in, moving in a direction of obeying God. If obedience, at least some obedience, does not mark your life, then you have reason to question your calling as to whether or not you are truly a believer. And that involves great struggle. From the day that we become a believer, we fight against the world and the flesh and the devil. And we require the grace and the peace of God every step of the way. That's why Paul closes this introduction with the words grace and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. That's not just a traditional Christian greeting. He is wishing them what they and we also who remain on this planet need every moment of our lives. We are saved by grace. We must live by grace. Moment by moment drawing strength from the Father. Jesus said, apart from me, you can do nothing. We need his grace every moment of every hour. And peace. We need peace. These are not peaceful times. Only fools think them peaceful. They're troubled times. And those who are in Christ and are drawing on him for their strength live peacefully in the midst of them. I had a man confront me this week about all of the events going on in the political situation. And, and he said, well, it looks like the country's coming apart. I said, it may well be. Well, we can't survive. Oh, I would hate to see the country fly apart. But listen, my salvation does not depend upon the United States of America. My salvation is not contingent upon a Republican holding office or a Democrat holding office or how many conservatives serve on the Supreme Court. 
Now, I have an opinion like everybody else, and mostly, I guess, it's worthless, but my peace comes from knowing that I belong to Jesus Christ, that He has called me, and that God loves me. I am one of His saints, and in the midst of the most troubled times, if everything flies apart, the sinner will hold because the center is Jesus Christ. Let us suppose that our civilization crumbles. Let us suppose that we sink lower than we have before. Listen, for all of those who believe in Jesus Christ, there is grace and peace to us from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. And if everything crumbles, remember, you are standing on solid rock. If you hit the bottom, okay, because the bottom is solid rock. And on Christ the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. Let's stand and sing.